This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to season one of The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Welcome to Race to Value. This week, we are excited to be interviewing Dr. Kevin Spencer, Medical Director in Texas for Agilon Health. Dr. Spencer is an early adopter of value. He's a practicing family physician who has most recently been the CEO of Premier Physicians. He's also the founder and president of Southwest Provider Accountable Care Organization, as well as oversees the strategy, operations, and growth for Connected Senior Care Advantage Program, which is a unique partnership model with Agilon Health. Eric, truly a great interview with a brilliant leader of value. I got to say, Kevin Spencer, absolutely brilliant leader in health value. I, I worked with him for several years early on in my career and learned so much from him. And he's such a visionary. I mean, he was an early adopter in value-based care in Austin, Texas, at a time when no one was really getting it. And he pushed forward. And now in his work with Agilon Health, really leading the way in fully delegated capitated risk and Medicare Advantage. Real excited to have him as a guest today. And so let's hear from Kevin as he joins us today in this race to value. Dr. Kevin Spencer, welcome to Race to Value. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. Hey, it's good to hear your voice, Kevin. You know, it's been a few years since we worked together. And, you know, I really miss our conversations about the business of value-based care. And as a mentor and a friend, I just want you to know how great of an honor it is to have you on the podcast. Of all the physicians I've worked with and various ACOs over the years, you're one of the best. I mean, your business acumen in leading physician risk-bearing entities is unlike anything I've ever seen. Wow. Well, I appreciate the compliment, Eric. I thoroughly enjoyed working with you. You taught me a lot as well. There's a lot to learn um, in this ever-changing environment, that's for sure. Oh, I appreciate that. And, you know, Kevin, I thought as we begin our conversation today, we could discuss your journey in value-based care and how that journey has been enabled by various tipping points along the way. So many of our listeners out there are leading similar shifts in their respective organizations. In effect, moving away from fee-for-service towards a more patient-centered model of care delivery that's enabled by population-based payment or capitation. 
And many physicians are now starting to take the business model of value-based care seriously in light of COVID, but you've been dealing with the shift in your medical practice towards value-based care for years now. I mean, you were one of the early champions of the physician-led value movement in Austin. And I remember you and I talking, you know, throughout those early years about the challenges of being an early adopter. And so we're going to get into more detail about your work with Agilon Health and the Connected Senior Care Advantage Program in a bit. But I thought a great place to start our conversation would be just discussing some of the lessons you learned in physician-led accountable care over the years as an early adopter. Can you walk us through you joining Premier Family Physicians, your leadership collaboration with the late Dr. Kurt Frederick and the founding of SW? provider ACO in 2014. And after starting your ACO in those four years before your practice entered into a JV with Agilon, what was it like beating the drum for value-based care before physicians really took it seriously and value wasn't yet part of the physician culture in Austin? In those early years, as you were focused on the fundamentals of blocking and tackling, how did you develop an ACO playbook that included you know, access and availability, AWVs, ER diversion, risk adjustment without overwhelming the physicians. As you look back, what lessons did you learn in those early years that now serve you well as a thought leader in fully delegated Medicare Advantage risk models? No, that's a great question, Eric. I tell you that the people today, as this kind of beating drum and inevitability of a push to value feels like the cadence is much quicker, the reality is much more real. It wasn't like that back in 2013 and 14. And, you know, I think in many ways, our journey is our journey. And I think the lessons learned and, and really just the ability to be paying attention to this for now eight years at the level that we've been, been grinding at it has served us well in the sense that we have a bit of a foundation built with our providers as we continue to create programs and continue to, to work towards value to improve the quality access and where appropriate cost for our patients. In many ways, frankly, we were too early. While many of our colleagues were creating ancillary business streams and benefiting from, from other parts of, of the medical environment that you can create as a spinoff from your main business of seeing patients, really Dr. Frederick, the late Dr. Frederick, my partner, really had a vision earlier than most that this is where we were headed. At the time, we'd heard we were headed here for, for many years, and it was very slow and incremental change, but we believed in it. We believed in independent physicians kind of collaborating together for the good of the patient and, and where we can controlling our business model. So back in 2013, we created a physician-owned, physician-led ACO. We partnered with InnoVista Health as our management partner to bring an ACO to independent physicians in Austin, Texas. While our ACO never really produced financial results that were profound, it did change our culture. It did align us with our patients on the right amount of time with our patients, the right amount of quality adherence, the ability to learn the market and understand where potentially wasteful or unnecessary costs lied and so as we went through those first few years without exciting financial results, we did learn a lot. And we also were able to begin to change the physician mindset and recruit physicians into the group who really thought this way. So I think, I think in that way, we were ahead. In other ways, the environment wasn't there. We didn't have a large enough market share 
to really affect all of the downstream cost at the hospital, the specialist office, the post-acute space, and near the degree that, that we're starting to see today and what we're working on. So, so I would say it was a, a very great learning environment. It wasn't easy. That's the thing I've learned about value-based care is, as you mentioned, kind of changing the workflow, the mindset, the culture towards value from what physicians and other medical colleagues are used to doing certainly is not an easy walk. And so um, we probably have all the scars of those years, but now we have a foundation as especially in the last 18, 24 months, we're seeing this move to value accelerating. We feel like we're in a good spot um, as a result of all the early work where you know, many, many others are trying to learn what we learned over several years, sometimes in several months. So it all works out. I think at our core, we believe that healthcare is better delivered in a value environment. We believe that prepayment and the ability to put the premium dollar in the hands of the physicians who primarily are taking care of the patient, that they'll do the right thing for the right reasons at the right cost, just at a fundamental philosophical basis. We believe that. Well, thank you, Kevin, for sharing your journey in health value in those early years. So let's fast forward a little bit. So it's 2018, and Premier Physicians decided to partner with Agilon Health and a joint venture that also included Austin Regional Clinic. And you had a vision to embark on a unique model of care enabled by global risk contracts for Medicare Advantage. And for our listeners out there, Agilon is a national leader in providing technology process standardization and capital for high-performing physician organizations looking to succeed in global risk capitation models and MA. So Kevin, this decision to enter into a joint venture with Agilon, it was a big part of your population health strategy as the president and CEO of Premier Physicians at the time. And I remember when you made that decision to partner with Agilon and you were telling me that it wasn't even the highest offer. You know, your board made that decision because Agilon offered a true partnership model that you know, it didn't even include, as I understand, equity, but it did provide the infusion of much-needed capital in the practice. Can you describe to our listeners um, what is unique about the Agilon Physician Partnership Model, and how is that business model different from high-touch primary care groups like Oak Street and ChinMed that are expanding into new markets to take fully delegated capitated risk with Medicare Advantage plans? No, it's a great question. You know, we found ourselves in late 2016, 2017, in a position where we felt like we needed a different business line around Medicare altogether. And we knew, we knew we needed a partner to do that. Not only a capital partner, but a thought partner, a partner with expertise and subject matter expert at really managing this. As we networked with our colleagues at APG and AMGA and others, we just saw that CMS pushing the risk to either the, the healthcare payers or the physician groups was accelerating. And, you know, we had the basics of a skill set to begin to explore that, but we needed a real partner. And as we sought that, what we found was most folks were wanting to buy our group or take equity stake in our group and ownership, or they were wanting to sell us services at a margin and kind of wish us luck, but not really have the same skin in the game that our medical group did. And that's when we were introduced to, to Agilon Health. And my credit Austin Regional Clinic here in Austin with bringing that relationship to us. And for them having the vision that having more independence in the market, operating in risk is really would help flip the market to risk more quickly. 
And so they were kind enough to invite us into that joint venture in that relationship. But yeah, Agilon differs in a few ways. First and foremost is the, the partnership element of, of the company. It's truly partner facing. While we are creating a Medicare Advantage line of business in a joint venture together, the health of the practice itself is paramount to their success and to the joint venture's success. And it very much feels that way and has felt that way from the beginning. Not having you know worked with private equity-backed companies before, we were unsure as to what that would be like, but it's been a true equally yoked partnership and it's really allowed all lines of business in our practice to rise throughout the, the life of this partnership. So I think that was one difference. The other difference is, you know, you mentioned Oak Street and ChinMed, Iora is another. There's some really great companies out there. They're doing fabulous work in the senior space that I've had a chance to network with. And those are certainly three of them. I think one of the differences that Agilon has brought is when I think about the business model with those groups, and I may not have this all correct, but this is my perception, is they will enter into a market and create clinics, hire physicians, recruit physicians, and then and then begin to go into areas where the seniors are, especially the seniors in need, and begin to build a practice. And so they've been successful at it, and I think they'll continue to be successful at it, but that is a very capital intensive and very time consuming way to flip a market to risk. And they really only control a small part of the market and that's the senior market. Where Agilon's model is to go in and partner with strong existing, well-branded medical groups that are independent who have a patient base already. So the customer acquisition cost is really very little. They come in, we already have the Medicare patients, the Medicare Advantage patients, you know, in our market, in our joint venture, we're having seven or 8,000 patients age into Medicare annually. So this ongoing pipeline to build the line of business and to really design a care delivery system that's different for seniors. So our challenge, unlike the, the companies you mentioned, they have a very narrowly focused process and operational kind of approach to taking care of seniors only. So our, our issue is how do we build a senior business that's designed for seniors while 80% of our of our business is commercially insured patients and other patients. And so physician engagement, physician mind share, physician compensation are things that we've had to change and tweak and evolve in order to do this well. But the foundation of having the business there, of having the patients, having the brand in the community, you know, we've seen our groups be groups that at Premier, we, we would allow a new physician to obtain a certain number of Medicare patients, and then we would close their panel with the thought being that we want to do our part for our city and taking care of Medicare, but at, at a Medicare rate that, you know, it was difficult to maintain a very high percentage of Medicare patients within the practice vis-a-vis -vis the commercial. And now we understand that operating in value, that these are our most valuable patients from what we can deliver to them. They have the highest needs, they're older, they often have a, a higher disease burden. So we need to be open for our community, we need to be seeing them more. But also as we execute well on the various levers of the business, they've become a very financially rewarding uh, group of patients to take care of as well. So that's been our experience. But I think those were some high level differences in, in what we saw when we 
went to market looking for a real partner and what we found in Agilent Health. Dr. Spencer, this is Daniel. And I want to say it's a pleasure to be speaking with you today on the podcast. Eric has really spoken highly of you and the work that you guys did together in the ACO years ago. I want to ask you more about your thoughts on fully delegated Medicare Advantage risk. As a point of reference for our listeners, currently one-third of all Medicare beneficiaries, 22 million people, are enrolled in Medicare Advantage plans. And the CBO projects that the share of beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare Advantage plans will be about 50% in the next five to 10 years. This enrollment growth trajectory, coupled with the silver tsunami of the aging baby boomer population, certainly makes MA an attractive business to get into for primary care physicians. If they can do it well, it's a remarkable opportunity to have an impact in population health, which, as you suggest, financially rewarding economics. So as a physician-led risk-bearing entity, it seems to me that once you pay for the compliance investment, the regulated infrastructure, and the other things that you need to operate in the program, it can be quite lucrative to be an MA risk, and the patients tend to be quite sticky. MA plans really seem to be an area for consumer-centric innovation, where certain health plans can offer members greater flexibility, inventive care models, and increased emphasis on economic value and unique benefit options often while being more affordable than traditional fee-for-service coverage. So how do you see Medicare Advantage becoming more prominent as a primary risk vehicle for managing outcomes in the senior population? I'm interested if you could share with our listeners about your Medicare Advantage population health model called Connected Senior Care Advantage and how it's able to provide enhanced care coordination, post-hospital follow-ups, care planning, and really helping patients with things like medication reconciliation and mental health screenings? No, it's a great question. And I, I think at the, at the core of this, this will only work if we actually deliver a much, much superior product to our seniors in America than, than the care they've been receiving up till now, which in many cases has been fragmented, disjointed, and not always aligned with their belief systems or their interests. And so I think if we don't deliver on that, then this will not be successful. So at its core, that's so important for the listeners to remember that, you know, we're, we're a physician organization and we're here to take care of people. As you think about that, though, what, what I think you're mentioning is, but what's the business plan and the business environment to make that successful and sustainable so that the economics makes sense so that you can reinvest in programs to help patients to get better outcomes. And so Connected Senior Care Advantage is really just the outward facing brand of our joint venture of the risk-bearing entity itself. So the idea is, is that those words connected and senior care advantage all kind of point to a payer agnostic health plan affiliated entity that contracts with Medicare Advantage health plans. So currently in our market, we contract with three health plans and we'll be adding a fourth in 2021. So to the physicians, they're not worried about, is this a Humana patient, an Aetna patient, a WellCare patient? They're just understanding this is a senior patient. This is a patient that because of our risk model, we have clinical programs that we've created. Yeah, because of the importance of looking at documenting all of their illnesses every year, both, both in regards to risk adjustment, but in regards to feeding our population health engine with the appropriate information so that we know who our rising risk are. Those are some of the pillars of what this gets. And so 
again, it's that backdrop, but it's a pair agnostic experience for the groups. You know, we've been able to partner with and provide transition to care services, care management services for our sickest of the sick. We have a home visit program for our patients that are homebound that we, we never had before. We just launched a pharmacy program, which gives a, a pharmacist as part of the care team at, at no cost to the patient. So see, these are some of the early investments that, that we've made. We've also really worked well with the specialists in our community to align them and help them understand what we're trying to accomplish and why and where they fit in. And in some cases have service level agreements with them around things such as access or step therapy within their specialty or even site of service in some instances. So we're beginning to try to design just a smarter, more efficient system that puts the patient first and the primary care physician really in the seat to really oversee the care. I think the pandemic that we're living through has really benefited us in, in the sense that I think we rebuilt the trust of the patient. In order to quarterback a patient's care, the patient has to consent to that, has to really, really trust you and put you in the seat of, of delivering and orchestrating the different parts of the care delivery system that they need to access. And so our ability to be so available and for patients to be more careful about checking in with their quarterback before they go make a healthcare decision in the current environment has made that part of the relationship more sticky. You know, you mentioned the sticky nature of the business model. It is a very sticky business model from the sense of the patient-physician relationship. You know, someone ages in to be 65 and they, they go onto a Medicare Advantage plan. They can sometimes, oftentimes have differentiated benefits there, which benefit them. And then the ability, they often, you know, with the life expectancy into the early to mid 80s, that's often a 20 year relationship that we're having. So again, these patients, these members of the health plan that come into our ranks are there for a long time. And as you mentioned, and it's a growing and ever growing part of the business. You know, we started in the market in 2018 with 12,500 lives, and we're gonna exit um, this year with 23 and a half thousand lives. And our performance says we'll exit next year at the end of 2021 with 30,000 Medicare Advantage lives, you know, at full risk. And so that really has allowed us to meet with the physicians. The physicians are very, very excited about the clinical programs. They're hearing from their patients that they're getting better care. You know, Agilon helps us look at physician burnout and, and, and challenges us to think about that within our practices. You know, at Premier, our physicians had a 93 NPS as to their thoughts around this line of business and what we're accomplishing. And then we surveyed our patients and they had an 87 NPS score at the experience they're now receiving. I dare say that three, four years ago, that would not have been the case within the group. So it feels like putting the patient first, taking the healthcare dollar and, and designing clinical programs that work for them um, feels like all boats are rising. The physicians seem happier, the patients seem happier, and the, and the results are beginning to, to show that we're doing something that, that seems to make sense. Dr. Spencer, thanks for that response. 
I'd like to talk more about Medicare Advantage and a specific value-based competency that's important to your success here, which is risk adjustment. It's become increasingly important to reflect the burden of illness in a senior population to the highest level of specificity so that appropriate resource allocations could be made both in terms of care management inter interventions as well as premium dollars flowing through the plan to support the population with their health needs. Can you provide a general overview of your approach to risk adjustment? And how has Agilon been able to support your practice's population coding documentation and the program for your MA patients with technology, capital, and staffing? As Eric has described it to me, you basically started from scratch in training doctors to understand risk adjustment. Yeah, and I think we've learned a lot through the years. I think that training on risk adjustment needs to be married to quality almost immediately and, and to the appropriate documentation that feeds your population health engine. But our risk adjustment program, we call it our burden of illness program, is really heavily supported by Agilon. Agilon Health has the technology that interfaces with our electronic health record to show the clinicians what conditions have been diagnosed in previous years that, they, that ought to be considered. A really important part of our program that I'm very proud of because it's really far more about quality than it is about risk adjustment is every one of our charts has a physician chart review one week to 10 days prior to the annual wellness visit. And that physician is able to be an objective look at reading through the entire record to unsurface conditions that may have been missed or overlooked that have not been diagnosed in the last three years, but yet are in the medical record that need to be considered not only for population health reasons, but it's also turned into quite a quality experience for the group. Things like a old PSA test from five years ago that never got followed up on that just was somehow missed, or a chest x-ray or a CT that shows an aneurysm that we just didn't follow up on, or a pulmonary nodule, or a lab value that, that somehow fell through the cracks. So, our patients are getting a better quality experience because these chart reviews are being done. And then we do often find other conditions the patients have that have never been diagnosed, which further drives the, the experience around diagnosing all the conditions, as you mentioned, which leads to the, to the adjustment factor as well as the, the revenue itself. So that's a big piece of that that is funded by Agilon Health. And then you mentioned staff support. So as we know, if you're gonna do this well, and do the annual wellness visit, which is the proxy and the visit that we like to use to really assess the entire patient's health, both from a screening and quality standpoint, but also the care plan itself, where we actually diagnose and go through each of the conditions with the care plan with the patient and address any end of life issues that may, may be appropriate. So those appointments take longer. So we're able to, to have supportive staff help the physicians with a lot of that documentation the mental health screening, the cognition screening, the fall risk assessment, the things that really matter to the patient around their functionality. And then we were able to, as a result of that, you know, there's a, the other thing is to get patients in to do these exams. So the outbound calling staff, the closing the gaps in care, all of that is, there's practice support available for all of that so that we execute on really having our patients have this really valuable visit at least once a year where we very comprehensively go through their entire care plan. So Kevin, as we discuss the business model for Medicare Advantage, I think our listeners would appreciate an overview of, 
about how the CMS stars ratings program works for MA plans. From what I understand, for every star the Medicare Advantage plan gets, it receives an additional 8% more in revenue between the increased bonuses it receives and the increased enrollment. On a scale of one to five stars, you have to hit that all-important fourth star to get the bonus and the rebates at the program funds. And these bonuses have dramatically changed the behavior of health plans and providers that are contracted so that they can provide services that improve the quality of care. And in the STARS rating system, as I understand, plans are held to about 50 quality measures, everything from drug adherence to diabetics taking insulin, as well as being measured on a number of member experience scores through uh, CAP surveying. And uh, member experience scores are really important and account for over half of the STARS rating. So for providers that share risk with the MA plan, either through capitation or a percent of premium deal, it seems like when the plan scores that all-important four-star and there's a, a big opportunity to receive bonuses and rebates, and that gets paid downstream to the providers. So I, I wanted to ask you about, just given your experience with Medicare Advantage, um, what have you seen in terms of star ratings improvements um, for the physician risk-bearing entities that you've worked with? Can you explain to our listeners how the MA model doesn't follow the natural economic rules? And what I mean by that is, you know, it seems like higher quality MA plans are actually lower in cost. Can you help our listeners understand maybe a little bit more about, you know, how that works and, and just your uh, views on the, the STARS rating program? Sure. So as we look at our business, you know, you mentioned burden of illness and risk adjustment as one pillar. Another significant pillar is quality as it relates to delivering a quality experience and then in turn affecting the STARS ratings. And then a third pillar is growth in, in how we, we grow the, the patient base and the membership. And so within quality, you hit upon it correctly. You know, in our view, being four STARS is kind of table stakes anymore. You must deliver on quality. And in many ways, I think that's CMS's way to protect the patient from underutilization you mentioned that the higher star rating plans often cost less, and I think that inherently begins to make sense when you really study what each of these measures are. You know, when you receive mammography screening appropriately, you catch cancer early in the stage on more and more of your patients, and, and the cost of care goes down. The same with colorectal cancer. You mentioned medication adherence. That is something th through our pharmacy program where we're highly focused on, your listeners will, many of your listeners will know that those measures are often triple weighted in, in importance. And the thought is, is if a patient's actually getting good care and taking their appropriate medication regimen and they're adhering to it, then their health outcomes are better, which in turn, you know, lowers their healthcare spend in many cases. So, so I think that does make sense, you know, higher star rated plans. The health plan, to your point, the health plans are paid rebates and paid more. So in turn, we're paid more if we're on a percent of premium deal as we are in our model. So there is financial gain and reward. And frankly, on in our contracts with some of the health plan, there's actually financial penalties if we don't achieve a certain level of, of a star rating. But we literally have a playbook around every single one of these up to 50 measures that you talk about. It's interesting that you mentioned the patient satisfaction survey, the CAP survey, that in 2021 is going to be quadruple weighted over its double weighting now. So we focused a great deal of time on that. 
we do that through patient engagement, through physician training around how to make certain that patients not only are getting the screenings and the access and the experience that they're being questioned about, but they also know that they're getting it. So there's, there's an element of making sure the patients understand what we're all trying to accomplish together through great shared decision-making conversations that where the patient will remember that we did ask about their bladder control. We did screen them about their mood. You know, we are asking them about their functionality and their, whether they're falling or, or needing other things. So there's an element where we send a birthday card to our patients mentioning the importance of the wellness exam, the importance of coming in and having their clinician go through the various parts. They begin to see what those elements are. On the day they come in for the for the exam, they get a piece of written collateral that goes over what the clinician is going to cover with them that day in the exam. And then they get a follow-up email or portal message thanking them for coming in for the exam and, and again, reiterating the things that were covered and that if anything in their health status changes. Our hope is that they that we're training our patients to understand we're here for you. And these are the, these are things that are important. This is about you. Yes, you may have diabetes and we're gonna manage that. Yes, you may have heart disease and we'll manage that. But what your worldview is, how's your mood and affect? Are you able to afford and take your medications? Are you functioning well in your home? Is your memory intact? Do you have the kind of social support that you need in addressing social determinants of health become a big part of what we do? And we think that improves that member survey as patients watch us care for them in a more robust way than we historically did in a fee-for-service model. But at the core of your question, you know, if you're going to be an MA risk, then a quality program aimed at the specific things that we're being measured on is vital. I actually, as a clinician, inherently do agree with most of the measures. Sometimes we physicians feel like, you know, the folks who are measuring us are not asking us what we think we ought to be measured on. But I think, you know, a lot of these things make sense around cancer screenings, medication adherence, management of diabetes, diabetes control, weight management, patients feeling satisfied and that they have access to their clinician on a same day basis for issues that arise make a lot of sense to me. And it really, in order to run a great group that's great for patients, we, we ought to be at a minimum four stars. So Kevin, thanks for sharing earlier how you approached investment with Agilon a few years ago. I wanted to revisit this concept of capital investment in primary care and explore that a little bit further with you. Um, Before COVID-19, we were already seeing a mass consolidation of providers in the primary care space and the amount of capital that's been poured into the health sector and the velocity to which it's been deployed, it's been pretty phenomenal over the last few years. Just on the private equity side, we saw about $60 billion worth of deals in 2019, and that amount has continued through this year. And it's risen you know, since multiples on investment, invested capital on healthcare PE investments made during recessions meaningfully outperformed those in other industries. So I have to wonder about all this capital investment and providers and what that means for the future of primary care. Should we worry about the corporatization of primary care? And if I'm an independent, financially distressed primary care physician just trying to survive through this COVID pandemic and get through this disruption that it's caused in my fee-for-service streams of revenue, 
what should I be thinking about in terms of financial viability? I mean, should I be looking to sell out to a PE firm or a payer back subsidiary or a health system, or should I write it out just, you know, thinking that vested interest in health value like Congress or payers will preserve my autonomy as a physician entrepreneur? It certainly seems that independent primary care physicians and practices have a window of opportunity to reset the conversation around investment in and payment reform of primary care. Can you share your thoughts about this, Kevin? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I've made the decisions I've made. So certainly I may be speaking with a bias. It's my general view that there, that we don't always have to put white hats and black hats on different players in the industry, but you're, you're mentioning specifically the, the independent physicians, many of who may be leveraged, you know, coming out of this pandemic with decreased utilization. You know, a, a lot of studies do show that the independent physician groups are functioning with a higher level of patient satisfaction and a better quality and cost. Certainly the independent ACOs vis-a-vis the other ones that were system-driven ACOs showed that pretty dramatically in the data. So I believe that the more autonomy that the physicians have with a business plan that's where they're aligned, that the, the results for patients and physicians are better. That's just my belief. I think, I think I've got some, some data points that support me, but that's my belief. So I, I would, I'm hopeful that independent physicians would maintain independence. Having said that, I think the current environment is that I don't think true, pure independence really exists anymore. I think interdependence with the right partners, with physician autonomy and decision-making is, in my view, kind of the, the best form of interdependence that we've been able to experience. So I would encourage those physicians to begin to explore, you know, who are the organizations and groups that can support you and can help you remain autonomous, but whether that's capital support, infrastructure support, contracting support, and there's plenty out there, as you mentioned, entering the space and aggregating. I would just be thoughtful about about looking at how am I valuable to, to those folks? And you are valuable. That's why the dollars are pouring in. But you need some teammates, in my opinion. I don't think sitting it out as a single or two provider practice over the coming years is likely to lead to kind of a viable outcome. I think, I think picking a partner where you can remain more independent. And I think if governance is physician-led, physician-owned, and, and you're in partnerships and you're interdependent, then I don't think we run into certainly clinical issues around the corporate practice of medicine. And I think, I think the truth is that some capital is needed to create, you know, a better delivery system than what we can give as fragmented physicians in the environment. So the ability to create some of the programs that we're starting to create and have created has been very professionally rewarding and it's great for our patients. So that's how I would answer that is, is I think, and that's really what we looked for and what we found in Agilon Health is someone who doesn't own my practice, doesn't govern my practice, but has created an environment where I can be supported both in capital, in technology, in infrastructure, frankly, in business, uh, business planning, growth, um, all of those things, they, they've been able to provide the expertise and the investment to help us make our group stronger. 
Kevin, in talking about COVID, I wanted to ask you about the impact that it had on your practice specifically of 42 primary care providers. I read an interview that you gave early on in the pandemic where you stated that visits were down 30% in the practice. So to take away 30 to 40% of your volume or from a primary care business, cash is obviously going to run out in a matter of weeks or months if the practice still has a large portion of its revenue tied to fee-for-service. I can't help but think, and I think many in the industry have recognized that there's a silver lining to this pandemic, which is that it's underscored the importance of capitated contracts wherein providers are assuming risk because they continued to get paid even as utilization dried up. So the beauty of capitation is that by the design of providing PCPs a hedge, if they can control their risk, it also spared them in this pandemic situation because when their volumes went down, they were the beneficiaries of reductions in utilization, not the payer. That's been a hard, painful lesson for some physician practices that operated under the fee-for-service model and had one or two weeks cash on hand when the pandemic hit. Has your take on the value-based compensation landscape for primary care changed in the advent of this pandemic? And can you also speak to what your practice did to scale telehealth so that you could meet the needs of your population? Absolutely. I guess in general, I would say the pandemic has made me even more bullish on capitation, especially for primary care physicians. You know, there's so much that we do for our patients that in a fee-for-service model, we're not paid to do. And the pandemic exacerbated that because it, it precluded people from coming into the office or wanting to come into the office. So the, the phone calls, the medication reviews, the messaging um, out to our patients, we literally called by phone all 9,500 of our Medicare and Medicare Advantage patients in our practice within three weeks of the pandemic starting just to let them know that we're here for them. Here's how we think you should think about your healthcare going forward. And to your point, if you're not paid for that and you've got a couple of weeks of cash on hand, that's not sustainable in, in this kind of environment. So, you know, the, the truth is we lived in both environments. So our Medicare Advantage business is, is a prepayment business with a percent of premium of the revenue. And so you're exactly right in the COVID environment, that line of business has functioned better than, than it historically ever has which has been great and it offset, but still the bulk of our practice still is fee-for-service. So we at Premier Physicians felt the brunt of, of that like everyone else, but it does begin the conversation around the design of the delivery system where a prepayment begins to make sense for the care that we give because we're truly giving the care and being the medical home for the patient, whether they're literally in our office or not. And we're incented to keep them well, whether that means that they, they have to physically come into a bricks and mortar building or not. And there's so many ways that we're doing that. You mentioned telehealth. So we had actually, ironically, just been on, about to launch our telehealth service within a month or two, and then the pandemic hit. So we just accelerated that in like many, many innovative practices around the country, we were able to flip in about 72 hours to offering telehealth. So we did have a reduction of about 30% of our visits in the month of April, but by May, we had, we had begun to have those visits come back with, with as many as in the early days of the pandemic, we were doing about 70% of our visits via telehealth. Today, 
We're doing about 20% of our visits via telehealth today, and our volumes have returned to historic norms. In fact, they're, they're slightly up. Some of that's based upon our ability to provide some of this within our market. And so we've been seeing more new patients who are coming into the practice as a result of some of the things we've been able to provide during the pandemic, like adequate testing, quick turnaround time with results, you know, the ability to, to quickly screen folks um, and to do that in a safe environment where we're doing that in a drive up environment. So, but yeah, I think the, the pandemic really highlighted that this fee for service, get paid for a click, patients have to come in, take time away from their job, drive for 30 or 45 minutes, sit in your waiting room for 20 minutes, see you, go back to work and all the loss of productivity when that could have been done in many cases over a virtual encounter in 15 minutes while they sat at their desk. I think as we know um, in many, many industries, but medicine probably chief among them, we've learned we can do things far more efficiently and far better, but we have to be paid for the, the risk and the relationship and the care that we're giving that's not just simply when they come in. So we, we support and are very much part of the conversations of how do we design that not only in Medicare Advantage with percent of premium full risk, but also in, in other lines of business such as our commercial insurance plans and, and can we see that and design that in a way that, that makes sense for all. Dr. Spencer, CMMI just announced the highly anticipated list of organizations that have been selected to participate in the direct contracting or DC models first cohort. Specifically, that list included 51 organizations called direct contracting entities. And I saw that Agilon had six of the DCEs on that list. And of those six, your practice is the one that's been chosen to be the DCE in Austin. Agilon announced in its recent press release that starting October 1st, participating DCE practices will commence the implementation work, which will include introducing a focus on quality gaps and burden of illness, developing preferred network partnerships and aligning beneficiaries, as well as testing the attractiveness of supplemental dental coverage for select beneficiaries. Can you walk us through how you are planning for the April 1st start date for your DCE in terms of optimizing your IT platform and dedicating staff to manage this population? And what investments are underway during this implementation phasing period that will enhance your organizational capacity of data acquisition and analytics functions? Yeah, that's a great question. And so we, as we began to look at the opportunity to do direct contracting, you know, in many ways, because our Medicare Advantage businesses with Agilon Health, this idea of an 100% up and downside risk on our Medicare lives, um, while there's not the same exact prepayment mechanism there, the ability to use Agilon as our partner and kind of feed into a lot of the existing data systems that we have today made that very attractive. So as you might imagine, a physician at Premier now kind of has, we already had one experience across all the various Medicare Advantage plans. Now we really, in our mind, have one experience across every Medicare life in the practice. So we are absorbing the data into the existing analytics engine and database. We are designing a burden of illness program that mimics the, the Medicare Advantage. While all the rules aren't the same, the principles are. You know, we're looking at quality. As you know, GPRO goes away and 
It's really focused on patient experience and readmissions. So we're looking at our transition to care program more, more closely around that. It'll, there'll be 5% of the revenue ultimately at risk on quality within the DCE. So we're studying what we um, want to do there to make certain that we have very high quality around the pieces that they're going to measure. So we are, have embarked on all of that in this implementation period and are, and are well into into that design and really look forward to, to April 1st getting here and then and then beginning to, to manage the Medicare population and really and provide many of the same programs that we've built on the Medicare Advantage side, we're leveraging and then utilizing. And I think that's how Agilon's thinking about it. They have these great partners in these strategic markets around the country who they already have a Medicare Advantage business with and they have a lot of this infrastructure already built. So to be able to, to add the Medicare lives into that same experience, not only increases their addressable market as a company, but it, it provides that support and trust that the, the practices have with Agilon already to really execute and, the, and, and provide for patients the same things within the Medicare fee-for-service business that we are. You know, you mentioned a couple unique things like benefit design. We are looking at offering a dental plan in the Austin market to our Medicare fee-for-service patients as a part of the DCE. So to be able to say to a patient, hey, if you're a Medicare patient and you're an attributed member and, and, and potentially you'll voluntarily align and even sign a form saying that Premier is your primary care physician, you know, you used to not have a dental plan necessarily as part of your supplemental benefits. We would be able to provide basic dental care. That's something unique. When, and, you know, we're interested in thinking about what are the right things to, to provide for patients that differentiate the experience of being in, in a direct contracting entity. You mentioned being able to network with folks. And so we've talked to our skilled nursing facilities, some other facilities, some of our physical therapy groups about being in our network. And so we can kind of downstream contract and form a network where appropriate with providers. So that's another unique difference between direct contracting and what used to be the ACO world. And so we're, we are do, utilizing, again, some of the leveraged infrastructure that we have from the MA side of the business and, and doing a lot with direct contracting. But we, we feel like from everything we see that direct contracting will enhance our position to take care of patients and the economic reward vis-a-vis what we were experiencing in the ACO world. Well, Kevin, I've really enjoyed our conversation today, and we've spent a lot of time talking about Medicare Advantage, and I thought a great way to wrap up our conversation today, it would be to talk about where healthcare is going now that our presidential election is over. Many progressives have called for Medicare to become the chassis for the whole health system. However, Medicare for All proposals advanced by, you know, the likes of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have encountered skepticism from many liberals and as well as heavy criticism from conservatives. Now, Kevin, I know you're not a health policy expert, but what are your thoughts about Medicare Advantage for All as a possible solution to health reform? It seems to me that Medicare Advantage for All could be a good starting point for a bipartisan discussion on creating a new framework for the U.S. health system. Unlike the higher profile Medicare for all approach, a Medicare Advantage for all approach would have several advantages such as broad political support, a capitation system that allows for a variety of benefits, greater efficiency and patient satisfaction, and a better emphasis on social determinants of health. As a physician executive, 
who is an expert in Medicare Advantage, do you think an MA for all model would work as a potential health reform solution? Well, Eric, I'll, I'll start by reiterating something you said, which is I'm not a healthcare policy expert. So with that as it may, I personally am not for Medicare for all. I feel like the free market and competition for the healthcare dollar and, and for patients' lives to serve them well is an important cornerstone to keep quality high. That's just my personal belief. As you mentioned, Medicare Advantage for All, that does begin to, to introduce an element of competition on behalf of the patient with multiple different health plans competing you know, for their services and, and for the networks that they provide with physicians that can provide better care. So I think that begins to move more towards something that from my mind, I would, I would be more philosophically comfortable with, although, although again, I'm not an expert. But I do think, Eric, the things we're learning in the Medicare Advantage risk business that, that can extrapolate whether it's Medicare Advantage for all or some guardrails and ground rules about a healthcare delivery system that's different and we create tenants around it that put patients first and put quality and cost in the right sphere are important. And I think part of that is aligning the physicians to the healthcare dollar. So I think what I'm watching is not physicians in the Medicare Advantage space, you know, attempting or even making, you know, large amounts of surplus payments and increasing their own payments to the detriment of patients. I see physicians less burned out, more eager to take care of people, excited about the reinvestment of these funds into clinical programs that raise quality. So I do think, as Daniel mentioned at the beginning, as we begin to predict in the next 10 years that 50% of our seniors will be on a Medicare Advantage plan, from what I'm able to see, the ability to exchange data in real time, be delegated and understand the healthcare dollar and design delivery programs for patients, that sector of my practice today is getting the highest quality and best care with the most visibility by us in delivering that care. So whether that's Medicare Advantage for all or we're using the lessons learned there as a proxy to look at other lines of business, I do think there's lessons learned here. I personally think the the experiment in Medicare Advantage is working. You know, I think there there's lots of things will continue to evolve in the coming years, I'm sure, around what are the risk adjustment rules, what's the revenue, how do we keep quality high, how do we look at site of service and what procedures can be done where, at what cost. You know, we certainly are in the early days of where we could be, but my view is is that if it's not the plan for all. I think it's a great learning ground for what we could create for all, is how I would describe it. Dr. Kevin Spencer, thank you so much for joining us today on Race to Value. It's been a real pleasure. How can our listeners find out more about Agilon Health and Premier Physicians? Sure, you could go to Agilon Health's website. That's agilonhealth.com. In Austin, Texas, our group um, is, as you mentioned, a 40-something provider primary care group, and our website is pfpdocs.com, and uh, you could go and learn about us and, and uh, see what we're doing, but love to share our story and, and network and collaborate with others who, who are thinking about how to solve these tough problems. 
Thanks, Dr. Spencer, again, for joining us today and sharing your story with our listeners. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.